So, all right, so um, we're going to be in Romans today and uh, hopefully get through a lot of Romans today. If you need a Bible, please uh, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Greg's passing them out. We want you to have the Word of God in your lap this morning as we look through it, as we study it. The book of Romans, you know, written by the Apostle Paul. And this, he pens the letter to the church in Rome. Uh, he's, basically, he's on his third missionary journey. He's in Corinth at the time he wrote this. And this is right before his time of arriving in Jerusalem with the collection and the donation that he had for the needy. And Paul wanted to write to the church in Rome because he longed to go there on his way to Spain. And he wanted to stop by there and get there. And he, he kind of feared for what was going on with, you know, the Judaizing teachers that were going around. They were disrupting churches in Antioch. They were, you know, in, in Corinth. and Basically, everywhere Paul went, there was always some kind of opposition or some kind of false teaching that was going on. So he, in an effort to thwart that attempt, Paul writes this letter to the churches in Rome. And we're going to find this morning that our main theme is, uh, is found in, in, in the God. And what he's going to talk about is really the, the true nature of the gospel. He wants to set straight what the true nature is of the gospel is. Well, what is that? Simply salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. We find that in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So Paul writing this, the main theme, again, in the book of Romans, is to set straight the design and nature of the true gospel. And in doing so, Paul demonstrates how the gospel of, of Christ fulfills everything that every other religious system was, was lacking. You know, they were, he was trying to equip the church in Rome so that they would be ready if somebody else came in with a false teaching, a false knowledge, or another gospel. And Paul sums up his theme in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul is confident that there is one true gospel. And I hope that you're going to see that this morning as we look into uh, the rest of the book of Romans here. In chapters 1 through 4, Paul basically, basically convinced them of this, that there is only one way of salvation, which is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And we're going to go into some of the practical benefits of that today, looking at Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. So I hope you had nothing to do the rest of the day. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, and, and hopefully I want to kind of share this with you today. We're going to look at chemical, a chemistry lesson today. Chemical equations and stuff, right? They're always fun, right? Yeah, people are freaking out right now. Like, oh, man, what are we doing? Okay. I mean, you can't help but talk about chemistry and not think about Beaker, okay? Beaker, he's probably my favorite Muppets character. That guy is awesome, you know, if you guys remember the Muppets back then. You know, he's, he's a close, you know, right there, first, second to Animal, you know? Animal is pretty awesome as well, okay? Beaker, you know, whenever you talk about chemistry equations and chemical reactions and stuff, you just got to think about, about him. So when we look at that today, when we look at chemical equations, we're not going to get real deep into it, so don't be too afraid, okay? Basically, you have reactants, okay, 
on the left side of the equation, reactants, the stuff that is going to react, and then you got products on the right side of the equation. That's what the outcome is after some change takes place, okay? Chemical reactions can occur between atoms, molecules, compounds, all kinds of crazy stuff, okay? Common example that hopefully you guys are familiar with this morning, combustion, okay? We all know what combustion is, right? You know, something explodes, turns into something else, right? That's the equation for combustion up there. You have hydrocarbons mixing with oxygen and then add a little heat to it and you get combustion, the reaction of combustion, you end up with carbon dioxide and hopefully you guys know what that is, water. Okay, H2O, okay? People did not just make that up. It's actually a chemical equation. That's what water is, okay? The reactants undergo a change. They undergo a transformation. And we're gonna look at that as what are the products of our salvation? What are the products of salvation in Jesus Christ? You know, we start off as a reactant. We start off as the old man reacting, being moved, being pushed around by the world, being pushed around and controlled by our flesh and operating under the flesh. And then we go through that transformation period, that reaction takes place, and we become a new product, a new creation, a product of God. In order to do that, we have to give up. We have to surrender. We have to give up. And a lot of times in chemical reactions, that's exactly what happens. Chemical reactions can be endothermic or exothermic. They can either give off, you know, heat or they can absorb heat. One of the two things kind of happens in chemical reactions. And for us, for salvation to take place, you have to give up control and authority over your life. And you have to give it over to Jesus Christ. So hopefully that didn't scare anybody, okay? Kind of done talking about chemical stuff for a little bit, okay? But four points are products we're going to look at this morning. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Kind of, th you say that real fast. You kind of think of that Laverne and Shirley little Shamil Shamazel, you know, little from 5C. You know, you remember that? Yeah, yeah. You guys remember this? Some of you guys remember that. Yeah, right? Yeah. So, four points are products of our salvation. If we look back, think about our chemical re equation here reactants on the left side, products on the right side. We go from a life of wrath to a life of peace. We go from a life of sin to a life of righteousness, from a life where we are under the law to a life of freedom, or we go from a life of death to a life where we are alive in the power of the Spirit. So our first point, we're going to look at going from a life of wrath to a life of peace. Before we do that, let's pray and we'll look into his word. Father, we thank you so much this morning for the power of your word. Thank you that we have it here in front of us, Lord. Thank you that we get to study it, we get to read it. Lord, I pray that it just pierces our hearts today, transforms us, Lord, changes us. As we take your word and we can take it and apply it to our lives today, each and every one of us on our own, we're all at different places in our walk with you. Lord, may we not grow cold to your word, to the hearing of your word, to the reading of your word and the study, and most importantly, Lord, the application of your word. Pour out your spirit upon us today, Lord. Open our hearts to hear from you. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 5, verse 1. We're going to pick it up there. Romans 5, verse 1. Now, in light of our time, like I said, you guys, you know, we can be here all day. So we're not going to read all the way through Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. But we're going to pick some important points out as we look through um, our, our text today. So Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore... 
Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Very important. Hopefully you guys didn't miss that. Did you catch what it said there? It said that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the first benefits that we have as a product of our salvation. It is peace with God. Notice it is not the peace of God, which is spoken of in other areas of Scripture. This is peace with God. The battle between God and us is finished. And guess who won? Okay, he did. Okay. What did he win? Well, he, he won us to himself. And some people don't even realize that they are even out of peace with God. They think, well, you know, everything's great. Nothing, you know, nothing really matters except for what's going on in my life. And my, it's all about me. It's all about what's happening to me. This past week, I was traveling for work, and much like the driver who flew over a blind hill, going through a red light, and almost T-boned me, I was like, Lord, thank you. That guy was blind to the effect of what he was getting ready to cause there. Nearly caused a major accident at this big, this big intersection. Blind to the fact of what's going on around him. Maybe you've seen other drivers heading down the highway. They're just driving down the highway like nothing's going on. There's a cop following him, blue lights flashing and everything. You know, he doesn't know it yet, but he's in trouble. <laughs> and a lot of people don't realize that, that they are out of peace with God. They are still at war with him. They are awaiting his coming judgment. And uh, Pastor Tim has kind of been leading us a lot through uh, Philippians here lately and looking at the joy that we have as believers and uh, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what's going on around us. And Paul shares a little tidbit of that here also in Romans. If you guys look at Romans uh, 3, uh, Romans 5, 3 through 4, he says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, wait a minute. We're going to glory in tribulations, you know? That word there is literally like stresses of life. We're going to glory in those kind of things? And Paul says, yes, we are. Because that joy that Tim has been telling us is we can have joy in the midst of all those circumstances because we know that God is at work in our lives. He's at work in our lives and changing us. And Contrary to a lot of popular Christian teaching, you know, it's not all about health, wealth, and prosperity, okay? That's not biblical. And I love what Spurgeon says about this. He says, a Christian man should be willing to be tried. He should be pleased to let religion be put to the test. There, he says, hammer away if you like. Do you want to be carried to heaven on a feather bed? Let me translate that into modern American, okay? Suck it up, buttercup, Okay? Suck it up, all right? God's at work in your life. He's doing a work in your life. He's, you, you're going to go through trials. You're going to go through tribulations because anything short of that is simply not biblical teaching. If you tell someone, hey, man, come to Jesus. Your life will never be the same. It's going to be awesome. You'll never have another problem ever again in your life. Who wouldn't sign up for that, right? Yeah, hello. And then they, become a, they, they give their life over to Christ kind of so to speak, and the first trial comes along, and what do they do? They throw Christ to the ground and say, I was lied to. I was sold a lie. I don't want anything to do with Christ because I was promised health, wealth, prosperity, and a life of no trouble ever again. That is not the true gospel of Christ. You see, God's wrath is righteous. It's true that we, you know, we have to be saved from this world, 
you know, our flesh, Satan himself. But don't think for a minute, you know, don't miss the most important part here. You have to be saved from the coming wrath of God. Look at verses 6 through 9. Paul promises the believers in Rome that they will be saved from this if they are really saved. Verse 6, For when we were still without strength, in due, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You see, it says there in verse 6, when we were still without strength. Paul is describing the greatness of God's love. It is a love that is given to those that are undeserving. Did you catch the few words there? He says those that are without strength to the ungodly there in verse 6. And then also in verse 8 it says to sinners. This emphasizes the fact that, you know, these reasons, I mean, for God's love, they're, they're only found in him and, and not in us. Because he says Christ died for the ungodly. He made clear through chapters 1 through 4 that Christ was the payment there. And literally, when he says Christ died for the ungodly, the, in, the, in, the, in the original Greek, the translation there, really you could say is for the sake of or on behalf of. He died on your behalf. So genuinely, for us to say, you know, Jesus died for me, we can also say that I have no strength in myself. I have no way to save myself. I am ungodly. I am a sinner. And Christ died to transform me and take me from all those. So the reaction that took place upon salvation, your old life was transformed into a new life because of what Jesus did for your sake, for my sake, on the cross. And we have to surrender to his authority over our lives. The work of Jesus on the cross is, is God's ultimate proof, if you will, of his love for us. I mean, he can give additional proof, no doubt, but there is no greater proof than him demonstrating his love and pouring out his full-blown wrath on his son so that you will be passed over. Look at verse 9 again. He says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from his wrath. We shall be saved from wrath through him. So if we are justified by what Jesus did on the cross, justified just as if I had never sinned, we can also take trust and have hope that we are also saved from wrath through him. And you may be asking yourself now, well, what wrath, you know, what wrath am I talking about here? It's, well, it's the wrath of God. It, uh, Paul revealed it earlier in Romans 1, 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and righteousness because, that, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. This wrath of God was placed on Jesus Christ as a substitute in your place and in my place. So we are saved from wrath. Again, some people don't even realize that, that God's righteous wrath is waiting for them. 
And I found this next verse we'll look at here in uh, Romans 5 and verse 14. Look at that with me for a minute. Uh, something I saw that was very, never really cl- stood out as clearly as it did here when I was studying through this. Romans 5, 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So nevertheless, death reigned. Did you notice it says, even over those who had not sinned? Death was still waiting because of what happened in the garden with Adam and sin coming into the world. Even those that had not sinned yet, at that point, every human, every, the principle is every human has sinned. And again, perhaps you don't think that you're under God's wrath. You know, maybe you don't believe what the word of God says here. I mean, I used to kind of think that way as well. I used to think that, you know, I was saved based on what I knew. I used to think that I was saved based on, you know, just being a, a good person. You know, I was, I was raised in the church. I was raised from the time I can remember, you know, falling asleep on my mother's lap in, in the pew. I mean, but I had, no, I had all those things in my life, but all they did was create religion. That's all they created was religion. They did nothing to create relationship. And when I was in college, um, I clearly heard for the first time a friend of mine that cared enough to share the truth with me that I was, in fact, still in line awaiting for God's wrath to be poured out on me because I had not given myself over to the Lord. Again, it was all about religion. It was all about do's and don'ts. It was all about your outward appearance. And at that point in my life, I realized that I was in trouble, (laughs) and there was absolutely nothing I could do to fix it. There's nothing I could do more to earn God's love that he already gave me. I simply just needed to surrender my life and give it over to him. And I realized at that point that I was a sinner and that I had broken God's law. And we see that also in Romans 5, 19. If you look, it says, For as by one man's disobedience... Many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. You see, Adam's disobedience makes everybody a sinner. It makes us, or better said, it, it places us in line to receive God's wrath. You realize that. However, through what Jesus did on the cross, through his obedience and going to the cross, and putting our trust in him, putting and surrendering to him, and placing yourself under his authority, righteousness is imparted to you because of what he did. And now you're placed in line for eternity with him. So back to our reaction a little bit, back to our chemical equation here. We've been transformed through salvation. We've gone from a life where we were waiting wrath, and we now have peace, a life of peace, or better said, we have peace with God. So point two, we go from a life of sin to a life of righteousness. And we're going to look at chapter six. If you flip over to Romans chapter six and verse one, Paul starts off, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So Paul's kind of wondering, you know, at the end of, end of chapter five, um, he kind of wrapped up chapter five. He says, you know, where, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And he's kind of thinking that, well, you know, someone's out there thinking. <laughs> you know, that's what we do. We get to thinking about stuff, right? And Paul's like, you know, 
after all, you know, if God loves sinners, which he does, right, then why worry about sin? If God gives grace to sinners, why not sin more and get more grace? So Paul's going, all right, you know, we need to, we need to clarify this real quick. You know, Paul's thinking, you know, some people think it's their job to sin and God's job to just keep pouring out grace. And he wants to clarify that because he says, shall we continue in sin? In the tense here, the phrase here, if you want to write out there in the margin next to this, Paul is describing the practice of habitual sin. Habitual sin. A life of sin. Repeated sin. Over and over when the Lord is, the Holy Spirit is clearly telling you to get those things out of your life. He's saying that that is unacceptable. Because we died to sin. And that changes our relationship with sin. The old man has been freed from a life of sin. Let's look at verses 5 through 10 in uh, chapter 6. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. The old man put to death, crucified, when we gave our life to the Lord. So what do I mean by that? The old man. It's the, it's, it's the life that was patterned after the life of Adam, after sin. Just obedience to your flesh. You know, going about whatever your flesh wants to do, crushing that. The crucif- we've crucified the old man. And God did this in us. We didn't do it. Christ did it in us. And we can count it now as being completed, being com- finished, being done. And we are now dead to sin and alive to God. Look at verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reckon. Reckon. We say that a lot down here, right? I reckon. I don't know. I reckon. Reckon is really like an accounting term. It's, it's, it's an accounting terminology, meaning that we reckon the old man as being dead, forever dead. Okay? Forever dead dead. This reaction took place in our life. Sin died when Jesus went to the cross for us and so we can reckon ourselves being dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And since we reckon ourselves being dead to sin we need to also get to the other side of the equation and reckon ourselves to be alive to God in Christ Jesus because sin no longer has reign over our lives. Yesterday, your sin from yesterday, today, sins you're going to commit tomorrow, crushed by being pinned to the cross with Jesus Christ. So what that does in us, it should transform us into obedience, obedience that leads to righteousness. Being freed from sin, we become slaves of his righteousness. Look at verses 16, 17, 18. Do you, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to be? You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, 
yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were, de were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Did you know that? Did you know that who you present yourself slave to be, you are that one's slave? What do I mean by that? For example, you know, if I obey my appetite constantly, guess what? I'm a slave to that. I'm a slave to that appetite. We have a choice then, right? We have a choice in that slavery. Is it sin leading to death? And Paul's going to hammer that point home over and over again. Sin will always, always, always lead to death and destruction in your life. Don't think for a minute that, oh, the sin for a season is producing something beautiful. It is not. It can never do that. Sin can only produce death and destruction in your life. So Paul is writing here that we need to be looking to be slaves of obedience leading unto righteousness. One way or another, you're going to serve and worship something or somebody. We were created in God's image. We were created and designed by him. We were designed as beings that were created to worship. What are you worshiping this morning? Is it somebody? Is it something? Or is it the Lord? You know, we don't, we don't have an option to live our life without serving either sin or obedience. That's, that is, it's black and white. It's black and white. There's no, there's no gray area here. You're going to serve one or the other because you were created to worship. Thankfully, if you are in Christ this morning, we've become slaves to his righteousness because of what he did. Look at verse 19. He says, uh, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. This describes the dynamic power of our habits, you know, how we move along in the direction that we're pointed. So think about this for a minute, okay? You go out Later this afternoon, it's going to be a beautiful day today. You want to plant some trees, you know, spring is right around the corner. You're going to go out there, you're going to plant a little sapling, okay, in your yard. Five years from now, you're going to go out there and do it again. You're going to plant another little sapling. Now, that other tree's been there five years already. And then five years later, you're going to go out and plant another sapling. Five years later, you're going to go plant another one. Which one of those trees do you think will be the most difficult to pull out of the ground? Okay, obviously the one that you planted 15, 20 years ago, right? Versus the one that you just planted, just watered. You could probably walk over there and just pull it up with a couple fingers. Just pull the sapling up out of the ground. Seriously doubt you're going to do that with a 15-year-old tree. Okay? Not going to happen. What's my point? The longer that you're rooted in a behavior, the harder it is to uproot it out of your life. And that principle works either way. That principle works for good, and that principle works for evil. It works either way. So what am I saying? Get rooted in the word of God. Continue to get rooted in the word of God. Get rooted in his word and have it in you over and over and over and over again because guess what? It's going to be that much harder for someone to ever take that out of you, ever pluck that out of you. You don't think that, I, you, don't think, you don't think it's, you know, the longer you're in something, it's, it's harder to quit or walk away. Ask somebody how hard it is to quit smoking. 
okay? Someone who's been smoking 15, 20, 30 years and ask them to just put it down and walk away from it. God can do anything in our lives, but it's much harder the longer you've been in that, being rooted in it. It works for good or evil. Finally, as we go from this life of sin to a life of righteousness, we're going to see Paul wrap it up in one of the most uh, famous verses, hopefully, that you're very familiar with, uh, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That should be one that should be embedded in your mind, embedded in your heart. When you work for sin, your wages are always, always, always death. Always. When we obey sin, the habitual sins in our lives, and we quench the Holy Spirit, telling us to walk away from those things, we are producing death in our lives. That's the only thing that can come out of that. The only thing. Now, on the other side of that, when we serve God and work for the Lord, we get no pay. But let me tell you, the benefit package is out of this world. <laughs> it's beyond anything that we can comprehend is what we're told in Scripture. He's gone and he's preparing a place for us that you can't even fathom. You can't even imagine how awesome it's going to be. He's doing that for us right now. Paul answering his own question from earlier on in the chapter. I mean, we have a change of ownership as a be being a believer. When we are transformed from a life of sin into a life of righteousness, you fall under new ownership, new authority in your life, a new master in your life. You can't serve the old master anymore. You cannot serve two masters. So far, we've looked at the first two points, wrath, producing peace and sin, producing righteousness. Now we're going to look at the third point, how we go from a life where we were under the law to a life of freedom. We're going to pick that up in Romans 7 and verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So the law, having dominion over our lives. You know, Paul told us that, you know, we're not under law but under grace. Here, he's going on a little further and kind of getting some practical implications of this and how that all works out. The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Paul is going to, again, continue to beat this point to death, you know, until you get it. The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, what, what ends that? What, what ends that contract? Death. Okay? Would you agree? I mean, you're not, who, who in here, show of hands, is going to continue to pay their house payment, they're going to continue to pay your mortgage after you're dead? Okay? Didn't think so. Okay. After your death ended that contract, okay? Nobody in here going to get up and go to work the next day after you're dead to pay your bills, okay? Death ended that contract. And Paul uses the example here in the beginning of uh, chapter 7, um, talking about uh, the example of a husband and wife, you know, and speaking that if her husband passes away, death ends that contract, if a husband dies, she is free from that law. Christ's death on the cross was marked with death 
to the law. That dominion that the law had over our lives is now dead. And actually, better said, Christ fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. We saw that in, in uh, Matthew in 5 and 17, Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Christ is the only one that could ever fulfill all of the requirements of the dominion of law over your life and over mine. What, what do I mean by that for a minute? Let's, let's consider the opposite for just a minute. If you are not a believer, you are not in Christ, and you have not submitted to his authority in your life, you're still under the law. You are still going to be judged by the law, and you have to meet every requirement of the law. You have to fulfill all those, all by yourself, without fail, not dropping the ball ever, not missing one point, one jot, one tittle, nothing. You have to fulfill all of that. You think for a minute, all right, I'm okay. I'm okay so far. Have you ever stolen anything, regardless of its value? I'm not talking grand theft auto. I'm talking you took a pen from your workplace, okay? If yes, that makes you a thief forever in the eyes of God. That makes you a thief. Have you ever looked at someone and lusted after them? Oh, man, I like that guy or I like that girl or whatever the case may be. You know, if yes, then you've committed adultery in your heart. And forever, in God's eyes, you are now an adulterer. Maybe you've desired to have something somebody else has. Man, that guy has a nice house. He has a nice car. He has whatever. Again, you have coveted and forever you have broken God's perfect law. Well, maybe you think for a minute, well, you're still trying to convince yourself. No, I'm good. I really haven't done, I haven't done those things. James tells us in James 2.10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. You see, the point of God's law was never for us to try to keep all of it. That wasn't the point of God's law. The point of God's law was to point us and show us that we have a need for a Savior. Every single one of us. Again, if we're honest with ourselves, there is no one that has kept all of God's law all of the time. Look at uh, Romans 7, in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin, Paul says? Certainly not. On the contrary, notice, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Paul wrote something very similar to the church in Galatia. In Galatians 3, verse 24, he says, Therefore the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster, or teacher, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The point of God's law is to show us our need for a Savior. And maybe you've been able to share that with other people before. You know, people that think that they're good enough to get to heaven, or they're good enough to do those things on their own. 
Over and over again, we see scriptures that that's the point of God's law. Now, for believers, those that have gone through this reaction of submitting your authority and placing your authority, putting your entire life in Christ's hands, we're dead to that law, and we're now married to another. Look at verse 4 in chapter 7. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who raised him from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. You've also become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Paul carefully explains that we died with Jesus and rose with him, and now we are new. We are a new creation, dead to the law, dead to the law. Uh, Morris says this about that. He says, believers are through with the law. We are done with the law. It is not for them as an opinion, as a way to make their salvation. They do not seek to be right with God by obeying some form of the law or any point of the law, as the adherence of almost every religion has done. You see, I kind of came out of a religion like that, where it was, you know, kind of a works-based mentality. It wasn't really, it was never said, but it was really heavily applied, implied. You know, it's all about the appearance on the outside, you know, and thankfully the Lord delivered me out of a life of religion and into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's all about being transformed, and Paul tells us that we are married to another. Our lives are transformed. They are changed. We are now set aside. We don't have a lot of time to get into it this morning, but Marriage is a beautiful picture of our lives with the Lord. You know, we are told in Scripture that we are the bride of Christ. And he's coming back for us. So we'll, we'll kind of wrap up this whole point in a warning in Romans uh, 7, verses 20 through 23. He says, now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Look at verse 23. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Paul's challenge is to live like God made you. you know, and notice where the battle takes place. He says, we are warring against the law of my mind. You know, sin, Paul recognizes that sin is still able to mess with you, right? We're not freed from that temptation in our lives yet. We're still here, and the Lord hasn't, you know, completely come back for us yet. So we still are warring with that. But we can win because there's no, Paul realizes that there's no power within himself to win this and to stop sinning. He, he understands that he is powerless other than looking at, Christ in his life, and he does that. Look at verse 25. He goes on to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul looks outside of himself and unto Jesus, and we have to be reminded that we have to do that this morning. When the word there, it says through, if you want to underline that or circle that in verse 25, Paul understands that when he looks to God, Jesus is standing there in front of him, bridging the gap. So when God looks back at Paul, he's looking back at Paul, he's looking through 
Jesus Christ. So when God looks at Paul now, he doesn't see Paul. He doesn't see you. He doesn't see me. He doesn't see how wretched we really are. What he sees is the righteousness of Christ, which was imputed to us at salvation. Very important word when he says that. Through there, Jesus is standing there, bridging the gap between you and God. That is the only way you can bridge the gap. That's the only way you can move from one side of the equation to the other. Our last point is how we go from a life of death to a life alive in the Spirit. Romans 8, verse 1. This should be highlighted in your, in your word. If not yet, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not, do not walk according to the flesh, but, co- but according to the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation. Did you notice it didn't say less condemnation or a little bit of condemnation or partial condemnation? What does it say? No. None. Zilch. Nada. Nothing. No condemnation. Simple declaration that he makes here for those that are in Christ Jesus. And again, perhaps it's easier to consider the flip side. If you are not in Christ Jesus, again, you have not submitted his authority over your life, condemnation is still waiting for you. Condemnation is still hovering over you. You have not fulfilled the righteous requirement of God's perfect law. And we already saw earlier that there's no way that anything in us can accomplish that. Romans 8, verses 2 through 4, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, notice this, has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, underline that, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did, underline that, God did, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law of sin and death was a strong and seeming, uh, seemingly like absolute law, that there was no way around it. Every sin we commit, okay? You know, I, I Googled it. You know, maybe you guys haven't heard this yet. You know, 10 in 10 die. I don't know. That's the going death rate right now. I just I looked it up. I don't know. Every cemetery you drive by reminds you of that, Okay? There is a day coming. And for the life of a believer, we no longer have dominion. Death no longer has dominion over us. We are free from the law of sin. We are free from the law of death. Death, therefore, no longer has any lasting power over a believer. And this is all because, I mean, this is all due to the power that we have in us after we've gone through the transformation of Christ, surrendering to Christ in our lives, that power is no longer from within us. It's from Him. Because of the Holy Spirit being poured into your life. And we now live a life in the Spirit. Alive in the Spirit. Look at verse 4. That the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the people who enjoy this are those that don't walk according to the flesh, but they walk according to the Spirit. What, what does that mean? It means that their lives 
are marked with obedience to the Holy Spirit. They aren't marked with obedience to the flesh. You know, if your life is marked with obedience to the flesh, sin, it's only going to produce one result in your life. It's death. And don't think for a minute that, you know, Satan doesn't know what to tempt you with, okay? He is crafty. He knows what it is. He, he's not, you know, he's contrary to a lot of popular belief. He's not, you know, dancing around with horns and a pitchfork and a tail and a red suit. Okay, that'd be easy to spot him, okay? You know? In my workplace, you know, we have to wear these neon orange, puke orange neon vests so that people can see you so you don't get run over by a forklift. Okay? He's not running around like that, right? He's, he knows. He knows what you like. He knows what you love. He knows how to get under your skin. So is your life marked with obedience to the flesh? chasing after those things, trying to fulfill those things, or is your life marked with obedience to the Holy Spirit? God wants the Spirit to rule over our flesh because we are no longer bound by those sinful patterns. Our walk, okay, it's Christianese for, you know, basically the pattern of our life, what does our life look like, must be according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Walking in the Spirit, again, it's our course, it's our direction, it's the progression of one's life. Where are you at in your walk? Are you that sapling that is, was just planted? Are you, maybe you've been walking with the Lord five years, maybe you've been walking with the Lord ten years, maybe you've been walking with the Lord fifteen years. But where are you at right now, today? Is your life stagnant? Because you're either growing or you're dying. It's one or the other. Walking in the Spirit means that our course, our direction of our lives is moving forward, not being stagnant, listening to the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Again, every one of us are at a different place in our walk. Some people in here maybe just recently got saved. Maybe some been saved for 5, 10, 50 years. Maybe there's some in here that have never been saved. You know, you have to know where you're at and allow the Lord to speak into your life. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your life. Again, let's look at the flip side of that real quickly in, in the verses 5 through 8. Look what he says. Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for to be carnally minded is life. Oh, what? Mine says death. Sorry. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's at war with God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So setting our minds, did you catch that? The mind is the strategic battleground where the flesh and the spirit battle. That's where the battle is taking place what we allow in, what are we watching, what are we reading, what are we listening to, what are we allowing into our lives, what kind of friends are we hanging around, what kind of people do we place ourselves in. Now, I know that, you know, you go to work, you go to other places, and yes, we are supposed to be a light in this dark world, but I'm talking about who are you always hanging out with? Are you always hanging out with non-believers, or are you always hanging out with believers the majority of your time? Yes, we should go out there and be salt and light 
in this place that we, this is a mission field, okay? Where we're at, where you live, where you work, community you live in, that is our mission field. And we should absolutely be out there, but I'm talking about where is the bulk of your time spent? For to be carnally minded is death. When we set our minds on the things of the flesh, when we set our minds chasing the things of the flesh, it can do nothing but bring death in your life. I mean, don't, don't fool yourself and don't think for a minute that it can bring a life of peace. It cannot. Thankfully, as believers, as Christians, we are empowered to live in the Spirit. Look at verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So it's conditional there a little bit. We're going to come back to that here in a little bit. It's conditional. Because of the Holy Spirit being given to each believer when they are born again, when this transformation takes place, when you go from being a reactant to being a product, to being a new creation in Christ, every Christian has within themselves the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit that's greater than the power of the flesh. Always. The Holy Spirit is always more powerful. Now, we have the ability to quench that and quench the Holy Spirit. So, we need to make sure that we're not doing that. Because we're going to, Paul goes on, look at verses uh, 12 and 13. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, look what he says, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul has constantly been reminding us that living after the flesh always ends in death. We have to be reminded of those things constantly. This, the, the, the sin for a season, the pleasure for a season will never produce life in, in will never produce a, a life in you. It will, it will never produce that. It will only produce death. Again, we overcome it, Paul tells us, verse 13, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So when we put to death the deeds of the body, we force our sinful flesh under the submission and authority of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And again, you can't do this on your own. It has to be a work of the Spirit in your life. It has to be a work of the Spirit. And again, we can't think about this. Paul reminds us of this here because we can't think about doing this on our own. Maybe we'll look at, um, let's, let's take a look at what Paul told the Galatians in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Kind of calls them to the table here a little bit. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should know that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You see, Paul is telling us that we're not only saved by the work of the Spirit, but we also must walk by the Spirit if we want to grow and pursue this holiness in our lives. Again, nothing can separate you from the Lord, but we cannot be walking after the flesh. And we'll wrap up chapter 8 in uh, the last point here with what he says in uh, Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. 
Yet in all, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you know that nothing can pluck you out of his hand? Nothing. When chemical reactions take place, it takes a lot of effort to go from one side to the other. A lot of energy goes into that. And to reverse a lot of that, there, some things are irreversible. Your salvation with the Lord, true salvation, I will. Okay, true salvation. Again, I thought I was saved at one point in my life. But I did not, I was not. True salvation, putting your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ. Grace, through faith and trust in Christ alone, you, you can't go back from that. Nothing can take that away from you. Nothing can pluck that, nothing can pluck you out of his hand. And notice Paul says that in verse 37, we are more than conquerors. No matter what our circumstances, guys, no matter what the sufferings of this present age, no matter what we're walking through right now, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. And Paul says that this makes us more than conquerors. He says, nor than any other created thing. Nothing. Even if it appears to be good. Even if it is wickedly evil. does not matter. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So the four points that we looked at this morning are salvation, you know, and what happens upon salvation. Again, thinking back to our illustration of the chemical equation, hopefully it didn't scare you too much this morning. You went from being a reactant, you know, someone who is living after the flesh, someone who is following after the flesh, the old man, putting your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ. The transformation took place, and you became a product, a new creation in Christ. If, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you've been transformed from that, from a life of wrath to a life of peace, from a life of sin to a life of righteousness, from a life where you are under the law to a life of freedom, and from a life of death to a life now alive in the Spirit. But again, it's conditional. Do not miss that. It is conditional. If you have gone through this transformation. And now if you have not, again, I don't, I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. And, but I will tell you this. When I first heard that message presented to me, I knew without a doubt I was in trouble. There was no, there, there no wishy-washiness around it anymore. It's either you have placed your seat, <laughs> given your entire life, in your entire, the authority of your life, under Jesus Christ, or you have not. You know in your heart this morning if you've done that or not. And if you have, praise the Lord. You have the benefit of all these, uh, all these products of our salvation up here. But again, perhaps maybe you didn't know that this morning. Maybe you didn't know that you had broken God's law. And, and maybe you didn't know that, you know, maybe, maybe you didn't know that you, God's wrath is waiting for you. Will you do now? And the choice is up to you. Will you submit to his authority in your life? Or will you continue on your own, trying to justify yourself on your own? Because one day, the Bible tells us, we are going to stand before the Lord. 
We have to give an account for our lives and how well our lives line up to God's perfect law. We've already come to the conclusion that most of us in here are probably thieves, adulterers, coveters. That's only three points of the law. And we're already in trouble. How are you going to stand before God on judgment day? How are you going to reconcile your life and what you've done? Are you going to be standing there and trying to justify it on, well, God, I didn't do this and I did that or I did this and I didn't do that? Or are you going to say, that guy over there, that's my lawyer, Jesus Christ. He'll answer for me. And when God looks at you, he's going to be looking through Jesus Christ. And he's no longer going to see your wretched life or my wretched life. He's going to see the life of righteousness that only comes through the power of Jesus Christ. If you have not done that today, please do not, do not leave here today without coming up and talking to someone afterwards, you know, uh, because we're not promised tomorrow. We're not, we're not promised another day. Driving home today, you could be hit by that guy that almost hit me. And at that point, death... Death ends the contract. At that point, death ends the contract. It's done. You no longer have the choice. At that point, you're going to be standing before the Lord and trying to check off the law and match it up on your own. Don't play around with that. Don't wait. Let's pray, and then we're going to enter our time of communion. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word today. Father, we thank you that we are new creatures new creations in you, Father God. Thank you that the old man is dead, Lord, and we are dead to sin, and we, can, we don't have to be bound by that any, any, anymore, Lord. Father, I pray for each and every soul in here today, Lord. We know where we're at, Father God. If we are honest with ourselves, Lord, we know where we're at. Help us to not quench the power of your Holy Spirit leading and guiding, ever leading us, Father God, and just tweaking our lives, Lord, chipping away at the old man and doing a mighty work in us, Father God. May we not be stagnant, Father God. May we be always looking deeper into your word, Father God, taking your word and applying it to our lives. Father, again, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for all that you've showed us through it. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.